Welcome. You are listening to Passing the Peace, featuring Amy Meyer and Nancy McCraney. Passing the Peace is a podcast with a progressive look at faith, religion, God, the Bible, and some other stuff. If you're listening right now, it only takes a few clicks to help us out by subscribing to the podcast, giving us a review, and you might even consider sharing it with someone else who might be interested. For this episode, we are talking about love. And how do we do that? How do we do love? And why? The big surprise for me was how offensive this story was. Just really hard to swallow. And when I think about my own life, you know, it takes my breath away to think about certain people being my neighbor. Mm-hmm. So that was, and I always think, okay, if I, whenever I preach a sermon, I'm on the right track if it's really getting to me. Yeah. And this one really got inside of me mm-hmm. and is still sort of working on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He drew near to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer replied, The one who showed mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Some stories are like old friends. We know them so well, we can hardly remember a time when they weren't part of the landscape of our lives. They become like a favorite old sweater, comfortable, familiar, maybe a little worn at the elbows with a a button or two missing here and there. For most of us, I would guess that the story of the Good Samaritan 
is one such story. I'm pretty sure the first time I heard this story was before I could read. It was probably told to me by a Sunday school teacher using flannel cutout figures that she put on a green flannel board because in the 60s, flannel graph was cutting edge high-tech Christian education. And I just want you to know I'm a product of that cutting edge high-tech. So if you're like me, from the story of the Good Samaritan, you learned that we are supposed to help God in the healing of the world, to assist the stranger by the side of the road, to lend a hand to those around us who are dying in ditches, and to resist the urge to pass by on the other side. The risk of knowing these stories so well, however, is that we may not realize how little we understand them or that there are multiple layers of understanding within them. More than a, like a comfortable old sweater, Jesus' stories tend to be more like surgical procedures, intended to make, remake us from the inside out, to change the way we look at the world, to help reshape us into the body of Christ. Like the lawyer, we often know the answer to our question before we've even asked it, and certainly before Jesus has responded. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. It is a good question, a fair question, one we probably would all like to ask from time to time. In fact, I would say that at this particular time in our history, when it seems like almost everything from education to healthcare to government to the church is either floundering or in flux or for sale, we might shorten this question and urgently ask, what must we do? Jesus answers our present question as artfully as he answered the lawyers with a question of his own. What is written in the law? The lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Bingo, Jesus answered. Do this, and you will live. Therein, as they say, lies the rub. <laughs> Wanting to justify his question, the lawyer persists. And just who is my neighbor? I can envision this lawyer. He's probably pretty sure of himself, after all, he grew up in this religious tradition, and he has been a student of the law, likely for many years. He is looking for a list of who under the law qualifies as his neighbor, a list that perhaps could be debated, managed, maybe even manipulated a little to fit into a well-established worldview, something familiar, like a comfortable sweater, for instance. Instead, Jesus tells this story, and it starts off just fine, but it ends with a plot twist that took a scalpel to the worldview of his listeners. If we have ears to hear, we too may feel the sting of the blade as our assumptions and biases are laid bare. Because that's what Jesus always does. He taps into the deepest places of our hearts and our minds, 
upending our tidy understandings of all the perceived differences between us and them. So that little by little, it is only and always just us. Just us, each one broken and beloved and in need of mercy. Once upon a time, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and left him for dead. Jesus' audience would have known that this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was an 18-mile stretch of desert. It was a major thoroughfare for trading caravans, military personnel, and religious pilgrims who visited Jerusalem multiple times each year. Isolated terrain, it was an easy target for thieves who had an abundance of hiding places and escape routes. Jesus' listeners would have assumed that the man going down this road was a Jew because it was solidly in Jewish territory. It was known to be a dangerous route, and anyone ambushed along the way would have been very vulnerable. No food, no water, no shelter. The victim would have been utterly exposed and isolated. In the Middle East of that time, there was a code among robbers that victims are only beaten if they resist their attackers. Clearly, this poor fellow made that mistake and was savagely beaten, stripped, and left unconscious and alone to die in a harsh, unprotected environment. So at one stretch of this road was the temple in Jerusalem. It was served by three classes of people, priests, Levites, and Jewish laymen. The priest class, priestly class, was hereditary, and priests were typically wealthy and would not have walked this road, but would have had a horse or a donkey to ride on for their journey. Encountering this beaten, bloodied man surely posed a conundrum for the priest who came along. If the poor man in the ditch was a fellow Jew, the priest was duty-bound under the law to offer help. However, if the victim was not a Jew, the priest was under no obligation. Since the victim was naked and unconscious, there was no way to be sure of his ethnicity. And Jew or not, if the man was actually dead, the priest would defile himself under Jewish law by touching a dead body and would have had to return to Jerusalem for a week-long process of ceremonial purification. It was complicated. And so with no way to know if the victim was dying or dead or whether he was a fellow Jew, the priest had to make a decision. It was possibly even a dangerous decision for the priest, but he considered his duties and his options, averted his eyes, and crossed by on the other side. Levites were like assistant priests. They weren't especially wealthy and so would likely have been on foot. It's probable that the Levite in this story was the assistant to the priest who had just gone before him. Now, would it be a good look to stop and offer help upstaging the priest that you worked for and perhaps implying that you understood the law more deeply than he did? 
would you want to risk insulting the man you work for? And if the priest had passed by, then surely that was the correct thing to do under the law. The priest had done all the thinking for the Levite, and so he too averted his eyes and passed by on the other side. Now, stories that establish a series also set a direction. The audience knows the formula, so they know what to expect. So for Jesus to tell a story about a priest and a Levite, the listeners would have known already that the third person to walk down that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was going to be a Jewish layman. And he would naturally be the humble hero of this story. That's what they were waiting for. Instead, Jesus goes off script. Rather than a trusted insider, the hero of this story is a hated outsider, a member of the other team, the least likely hero. It's really important to know that shortly before the telling of this story of the Good Samaritan, in the previous chapter, Luke tells us that Jesus was refused lodging in Samaritan territory. Jesus and his disciples had been on a road trip, and the disciples had gone ahead on foot to find shelter for the night in a nearby Samaritan village. When they returned, seething with outrage, they reported to Jesus that they had been refused lodging and would have to keep on walking into the night. Samaritans didn't like Jews any more than Jews like Samaritans, and neither one of the other sleeping under their roof. The two groups had just enough in common to disagree about almost everything. It was an epic struggle over whose view of God and worship and reality was right. They both followed Torah, just different versions. They both worshiped at the temple, just not the same one. They both claimed to be God's chosen people, neither conceding that perhaps God could choose many as God's beloved and not just one group. The animosity ran deep. And so Jesus would not have been surprised that his disciples wanted permission to call down fire on this Samaritan village for their lack of hospitality. But Jesus tells them to get over themselves. That is not, he said, how we deal with rejection. So for Jesus to tell this story in which the Samaritan traveling in Jewish territory is the hero, the neighbor, the one who shows mercy, the one who fulfills Jewish law, is unexpected and unwelcome, to say the least. A man was passed by and rejected by his own people, and then was seen by a Samaritan who drew near to him and had compassion. Now, just as an interesting aside, um, really serious wounds were bound first, and then the wine and the oil was poured on them to, to soothe and heal them. I didn't know that, and I thought that was fascinating. So the more serious the wound, the more quickly you bind it. Um, just a little Bible trivia for you. And that's what the Samaritan does. He binds the wound. He pours his oil and his wine on the wound. You mentioned about binding the wounds, that they would bind large wounds and then 
for ointments on the yeah, bandages. That was a new, a new piece of information. Yeah, I was trying to figure out why that's interesting. For me, it was how the severity of the wounds. He wasn't just a little bit beaten up. He had wounds that if they weren't bound immediately, he probably uh, would have died. Okay. Um, so the severity of the wound means you had to close that wound mm-hmm. immediately. It's almost like bleeding out. You, you bandage that and mm-hmm. then you pour the oil in the wine, and, which is also interesting to me. It's like that's all they had was they didn't have Neosporin <laughs> or alcohol. I mean, well, wine, but <laughs> right. like they just used what they had and yeah. carried with them. Okay. So it gave me a visual of how badly injured, like what kind of fight this guy had been in. Yeah. It was extreme. Okay. That's, that's helpful. And also, you mentioned that there was some kind of a code that the assumption is that he must have resisted right. if he was beaten that badly, which may or may not have been true, but, right. but the assumption would be. And so I wonder if there was a, there's a piece of it where people would think, well, he shouldn't have resisted. Right. He got what he asked for. Yeah. Right. And we are so quick to do that in still today's society. Right. What do you think you would happen if you went down to 6th Street or, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. We want to figure out a way that that's not us. That will never happen to us. So if we can blame the person it happened to because they did something wrong, then that, okay, because we would never do that. Mm-hmm. But we don't know right? what we would do. Bad things happen. Yeah. And and we're really quick to blame the victim. I know. Yeah. We'll be right back, right after this message. He loads the man onto his animal and leads him to Jericho. Now, the audience listening to the story would then expect for the Samaritan to unload the man at the edge of town and disappear because it would have been dangerous for him to enter into Jericho, but that's not what he does. He takes them all the way in. He finds a place for both of them to stay where he can tend to the man's wounds. He pays all his expenses and promises to come back. Now imagine, it's the 1800s, and a Native American came across a cowboy with two arrows in his back. He placed the cowboy on his horse and rode into Dodge City. How might that have turned out for the Native American? We know that story too. So for Jesus listeners, this would definitely have been the first time the words good and Samaritan had ever been used together. You see, Jesus knew that sometimes we have to tell a different kind of story before a different kind of future can be imagined and lived. To recapture the force of this story for ourselves, perhaps we need to imagine the hero as the last person we would ever want to call on for help. The last person we would ever want to call good. The last person we would ever want to call a hero in our own lives. Now, I don't know who that is for you, but you do. You asked a question during the sermon that was something like, who in your life would be the last person you would call for help? Yeah. 
And I was at first probably thinking too large scale because I was thinking like Hitler. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thinking on a like sort of really global the, level. Or, yeah. The the honest glass. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that was my instinct too. You know, all I could think of were these national figures or historical figures, mm-hmm. and then to to bring it closer to home. Yes. Yeah. So, like, who do you not want to be the hero in your story? Yeah. Please, please. <laughs> right. And I was trying to think: Have I ever had that experience where someone that I really either didn't like or didn't um, admire in some way or just felt so other than me, you know, there's a person who's just so other than, has ever helped me in a way, and I I couldn't think of an example. Has it happened to you? Yes. Nancy told me a story, a true story, about when she and her husband were traveling And there was an unexpected series of events that landed them in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And they needed to try to get a boat to get over to Egypt. And while they were trying to buy tickets to get on a boat, a man noticed them and he came over and he said, My name is Muhammad and these people are trying to cheat you. They're giving you the wrong price for your ship tickets. Would Hmm. it be all right if I helped you? And we were a little skeptical, but we said, sure. And so he got us a cheaper price and then asked about us, what we were doing. And And then this man, Muhammad, took them to lunch. He took them to a few places that they needed to go for various things. He then took us to the American Express office. And the whole time we're thinking, what does he want? He wants Mm -hmm. something. We're going to have to pay him. Mm -hmm. Uh, he, He insists we spend the night in his... Uh, office. He said, it, it'll be locked. It'll be safe. There's cushions you can put on the floor. There's a bathroom. You'll be safe. And then he said, tomorrow I'll take you to meet the ship. Um, so he was so kind to us. He took us to a place where we could change our traveler's checks into cash. And um, we debate, you know, we'd heard of Middle Eastern hospitality. Mm-hmm. We never experienced it. And then we thought, Bill and I have this debate, like we don't want to offend him. If he's genuinely being kind to us, we don't want to say, let us pay you, because that could be taken as an insult, a rejection of the gift. So we decided we would say, you have been so kind to us, how could we possibly repay you? And see what he said. And so the next day, you know, he was taking us to the ferry, and we said that. And he said, just remember, you have a friend named Muhammad. If you thought about it, like thought about some of the worst times in your life and then unexpected people that mm-hmm. show up or showed up. I wonder if my problem is that I trick myself into thinking, I never disliked that person <laughs> because they've helped me. Because then they became your friend. Yeah. I know, right? It's like you then you see... I'm in denial. Jesus is forever trying to get us to see that we are not us and them, but always and only just us. Apparently, one of the best ways to open our minds and our hearts to this bigger reality is to be beaten up and robbed, or to have the bottom fall out from underneath us, 
or to watch our hopes and our dreams crumble in our hands, or to become vulnerable, weak, exhausted, and out of options. Because sometimes then, and only then, do we realize that God is in the good that is done. God is in the mercy that is shown. Just knowing the right answer isn't what's needed. If we had asked the man before being beaten and robbed and left for dead who his neighbor was, he would have gotten it wrong. It's after we've landed in a ditch, broken and bleeding, that we discover that anyone who draws near and helps bind our wounds is our new best friend. Who is your neighbor? Not necessarily the one who looks and thinks and votes and believes like you, but the one who shows mercy when you are most in need of it. Jesus says to us twice in this story, do this. Do this and you will live, he says when the lawyer recites the law. Go and do likewise, he says at the conclusion of this remarkable story. Knowing the right answer doesn't amount to a hill of beans unless we put flesh and blood on them, unless we live them. In other words, knowing about love is not the same as doing love. And doing love is what Jesus is always asking of us. Doing love is what makes us like Christ. Doing love is the heart of our faith. And doing love is hard. And it takes a lifetime of work. But doing love is the only way I've ever found to truly live. I was just thinking about the priest in the story and how it was really complicated for him if he was going to help the stranger on the road. And I was thinking, well, things haven't changed. There's just, it is inconvenient to help people. It is. <laughs> and sometimes it's scary or dangerous, or mm -hmm. especially, I think, by the side of the road. Yeah. If somebody has a flat tire, and I think the same yeah. Somebody will stop and help them. Right. Somebody. And I. what struck me about the story is how complicated a decision that would have been for the priest. It wasn't just that he was a jerk and he didn't care. It was right. There was a lot to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he didn't know anything about this guy. Right. Or if there were other people around that would run out. Maybe it was an ambush. I mean, there were right. just so many layers to that. Right. And I think we... I always heard the story and thought, wow, what a bad priest. And what, you <laughs> <Right>. know? <laughs> um, yeah. But then to put myself in that position and think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Or even friends at work that I know are going through a really hard time. And I just don't have time to, you know, I know they need right. time and attention and care. And you just hope somebody else will. Yeah. They've got somebody in their life that'll take that time. Yeah. I did that one time. I was interning at the hospital as a chaplain. And I had been in the room of a woman who had had a stroke. And the the woman was very young. And her mom was there taking care of her. And her mom was not all that old. And 
they were just having a really hard time. I spent quite a bit of time in the room with them and, and talking to them. But then when I was leaving the hospital later that day, I was coming around the corner to go to the elevator and I saw the mom waiting for the elevator, but she didn't see me. And so I kept walking and waited a few minutes before going back and pushing the elevator down button Yeah. because I didn't think I could emotionally handle being in the elevator with her. I get that. Yeah. So get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, it makes me think, too. It's like, I don't think the story is really supposed to make us just feel terrible about ourselves all the time. Yeah. But maybe we're everybody in that story. Yeah. That's what I... It's like, we're dying in the ditch, and we're the priest, and the Levite, <laughs> you know, who let somebody... Because I, I thought, the thing that surprised me about that is, oh, he kind of let the priest do all the thinking for him, at least in my imagination. Uh-huh. And I do that. Yeah. I just follow somebody else's path, and maybe later think, oh, shoot. They didn't actually make the right decision. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have just followed along. And then I also think, maybe... Jesus is the good Samaritan in whatever guise. Like the only one that can be completely and truly mm-hmm. that good yeah. all the time. And that's the, the, the path that I am to follow for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. To, with varying degrees of success. I don't even know if success is the right word here, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we're every character. Yeah. And sometimes self-preservation is, um, or not self-preservation, but self-care is right. is necessary. But Like you've given, you've given what you have yeah. in this situation. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. I don't know. I don't want to let myself off the hook, but also yeah. it's like I don't want to beat myself up. Right. <laughs> or be too casual about it either. Sister Helen Prejean, a Roman Catholic nun from Louisiana, burst into our national consciousness in the mid-90s when her book Dead Man Walking was published and then later made into a movie. Sister Helen continues to be a powerful and persistent advocate equally for families who are victims of violence, as she is for the abolition of the death penalty. Her ministry in this area happened almost haphazardly when an acquaintance of hers who worked for the prison board asked her if she would be a pen pal to an inmate on death row. She said she thought she'd write a few nice letters. She was an English major. She knew how to write pretty letters, and that would be that. After all, no one had been executed in Louisiana for more than 20 years. But Sneaky Jesus got his foot in the door, and before she knew it, she was at Angola Prison visiting Patrick Saunier, a man who had committed unspeakable crimes, serving as his spiritual advisor. She did not realize at first that to sign up as his spiritual advisor in order to get into the prison meant that she was the only person in his personal circle that would be allowed to accompany him all the way to the electric chair 
Following Jesus, she said, is like a flower blooming one petal at a time. Grace builds up inside of us. She knew she was in over her head, but she also knew and believed that there was a child of God named Patrick who was dying in a ditch made of abuse and mental illness, of violence and poverty, and instead of passing by, she drew near, had compassion, and bound up his wounds one letter, one visit, one prayer at a time. On the day of his death, this hardened criminal, softened by love and mercy, kept asking if she was all right. Sister, he said, look, I don't want you seeing this. Just pray for me. You can't be here. You can't watch this. I'm afraid of what it will do to you. She said she was so moved by his concern for her in the last hours of his life. But she knew that every other face looking at him would be the face of someone who wanted him to die. And so she said, Pat, I don't know what this is going to do to me, but you just look at my face and I'll be the face of love as you die. If God is truly love, she wrote later, then the deeper I love, the more I know God. That's one really good thing about the Christ life. It is grounded in the love of flesh and blood people. And then you talked also about um, Sister Helen and uh, the story of Dead Man Walking. I was curious if you've ever had an opportunity to care for someone in a similar way. Someone like Patrick Saunier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a hospice chaplain, maybe not to that extreme right. that I know of, but I do remember, and I bet you do too, taking care of people or sitting with people that you really didn't like mm-hmm. or you didn't like how their life had, how the choices they'd made in their lives. But your role was to be the face of love for them. And I remember this one guy, I didn't like him at all. He was, I, I thought he was really a bully to his wife. Mm. He never had a shirt on when I showed up to visit. It could have been, he had lung disease. It could have been he just was uncomfortable because he always had his oxygen on. Mm -hmm. But he was gruff and rough, and I just didn't like being around him. But he wanted me to help plan his memorial service so his wife wouldn't have to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to see that that was his way of loving her. Um, And then he wanted his memorial service at a honky-tonk in South Austin. He said, that's Mm -hmm. my church. My friends would think I was a hypocrite if I had it in a church because I never went. But I was at Joe's place or whatever it was called, you know, three or four times a week. So that was the first time I did a memorial service in a bar. Mm. And I grew up in the Church of Christ. We did not drink. I mean, I went to Abilene Christian. Abilene was a dry county. You know, Presbyterians are the ones that really introduced (laughs) alcoholic (laughs) beverages into my life. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so, but I have this whole lifetime, you know, 24 years or something of um, being a, 
well, pretty much. A, what is that word? Teetotaler? Tea mm-hmm. You know, not... It's, it's very much in my... Uh, the way I'm made up is mm-hmm. I'm not... Even now, I'm not terribly comfortable in bars. Mm-hmm. Um, so to do a memorial service in a bar was just hilarious because mm-hmm. I was like, Jesus is having so much fun with this. It's like, <laughs> come on, little church girl, come on in here. But to, to do that for that man, that was your question, to sort of care for him when I I thought he was not a very nice person. Mm. Yeah. That's the one thing that this is, is going to sound horrible, but that's the one thing I thought, well, this is really the easy thing about the man on the side of the road is that he was unconscious. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> because, right. Because I've had a similar experience where I was assigned, I mean, there's nowhere in life that I would have otherwise come across some of these people except for in my job. Um, but, and then you talked also about, um, sister Helen and, uh, the story of dead man walking. And, um, I was curious if you've ever had an opportunity to care for someone in a similar way. Someone like Patrick Saunier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a hospice chaplain. Maybe not to that extreme right. that I know of, but I do remember, and I bet you do too, taking care of people or sitting with people that you really didn't like mm-hmm. or you didn't like how their life had how the choices they'd made in their lives, but your role was to be the face of love for them. And I remember this one guy, I didn't like him at all. He was, I, I thought he was really a bully to his wife. Mm. He never had a shirt on when I showed up to visit. It could have been, he had lung disease. It could have been, he just was uncomfortable because he always had his oxygen on, mm-hmm. but he was gruff and rough. And I just, didn't like being around him, but he wanted me to help plan his memorial service so his wife wouldn't have to do it. Mm. And so I was able to see that that was his way of loving her. Um, and then he wanted his memorial service at a honky-tonk in South Austin. He said, that's my church. My friends would think I was a hypocrite if I had it in a church because I never went. But I was at Joe's place or whatever it was called, you know, three or four times a week. So that was the first time I did a memorial service in a bar. Mm. And I grew up in the Church of Christ. We did not drink. I mean, I went to Abilene Christian. Abilene was a dry county. You know, Presbyterians are the ones that really introduced (laughs) alcoholic (laughs) beverages into my life. (laughs) Thanks be to God. (laughs) But, But I have this whole lifetime, you know, 24 years or something, of um, being a, well, pretty much, a, what is that word, teetotaler? Tea mm-hmm. You know, not, it's, it's very much in my, uh, the way I'm made up. Is mm-hmm. I'm not, even now, I'm not terribly comfortable in bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to do a memorial service in a bar was just hilarious. Because mm-hmm. I was like, Jesus is having so much fun with this. It's like, come on, <laughs> little church girl, come on in here. <laughs> But to, to do that for that man, that was your question, to sort of care for him when I, 
thought he was not a very nice person. Mm. Yeah. That's the one thing that this is, is going to sound horrible, but that's the one thing I thought, well, this is really the easy thing about the man on the side of the road is that he was unconscious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because, right. Because I've had a similar experience where I was assigned to a man who had done terrible things in his life. And and he was a child sex offender and... Um, he seemed to, it was, I don't, I don't know if he took joy in sharing some of that stuff mm. or, or what exactly it was, but I tried to act as sister Helen in that situation, but it, it was not as successful as an outcome because I think he spent, I spent most of the time trying to be a loving presence for him and he spent most of the time trying to manipulate the situation mm-hmm. and to manipulate me. So it was relatively unsuccessful in that way. But it certainly gave me the opportunity to flex some of those muscles that I'm not used to flexing. Well, maybe that's the point. Mm-hmm. Maybe the outcome is not the point. I mean, we don't really know the outcome of the Good Samaritan. That's true. We know he dropped him off. He was still unconscious. He could have died or he could have regain consciousness and curse the Good Samaritan for saving his life or for touching him. You know, we don't know that. Right. So that makes me think that's not the point. The point is to to do love, to be love as best you can in this moment with whoever's in front of you. Yeah. And sometimes that means leaving the room. Mm-hmm. If you're yeah. in the presence of someone who is abusive or trying to harm you, then love is leaving the room. Right. So I, don't, I wouldn't want anybody to hear yeah. you just stay and take your blows. Right. Um, I don't think that's the point of this story. No, I don't either. That's a good, a good thing to add. Dear ones, what must we do to inherit eternal life? Love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor, every last one of them, as ourself. Do this, do love, and you will live. And now to the one who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Music for Passing the Peace is provided by two wonderful Austin musicians named Eric Garcia, Eric with an A, and Isaac Ruth. They do podcast music and other stuff too. You can reach them through email at booking at I-J-R-O-U-T-H music.com. That's it for the podcast today. Remember, it only takes a few clicks to help us out. You can subscribe to Passing the Peace, you can give us a review, and you can even share the podcast with someone who might be interested. This is Amy Meyer coming to you from the First Presbyterian Church in Elgin, Texas. You can find us on our website at www.fpcelgin.org. That's First Presbyterian Church in Elgin, Texas. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations that we are having, and if you think 
these kinds of conversations are important, then we invite you to come and join us if you're in the area. Join in on those conversations. Until next time. The peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Now go and pass the peace to everyone you meet.